that at the end of the day, what we've been seeing with these ransomware groups is that they're behaving more and more like regular everyday businesses. Hello, everyone. Thank you for tuning in to Security Superpowers. My name is Steve Ramey, and I'll be your host through this theater of cyber masterpieces. Joining us today is none other than Eritrea's own J.C. Roth and Evgeny Urchov. J.C. leads Eritrea's incident response team in Canada, and Evgeny is the director of incident response and threat intelligence. J.C. Evgeny, how are you? Hi, Steve. We're doing wonderful. Thanks. Just another great day in cyber. Thanks for having us on today. We're super excited to talk all things threat intelligence. Yeah, I cannot believe it's the, or Tuesday. <laughs> Crazy week so far. Um, you know, we have a jam-packed episode for you today. Uh, it's all about threat intelligence and, and how we interlace threat intelligence um, along with our forensic investigations and incident response. Two masterminds behind the helm here to guide us through um, talking about uh, specifically what threat intelligence is. And, and here's some frontline stories of what they're seeing um, during their investigations and, and quite frankly, also experience themselves. So I guess, uh, JC, um, you know, what, what does threat intelligence mean to you? Thanks, Steve. So threat intelligence to me is data points that we can collect to better understand our adversaries and who we're against on the other side of the internet, so to speak. <laughs> other side of the internet. I like the way you put that. <laughs> like an us versus them. <laughs> Red versus the Ru- blue. Uh, the Russian side of the internet. it's actually again that's a great question you know there's there is a lot of speculation uh that uh, there's several folks eastern europe based who are behind a lot of these attacks is that true or how true is that uh based on our assessment i would say probably like 80 percent of uh, the guys that we're dealing with uh, on the ransomware matters are like from uh, former ussr republics uh, some irsi in russia and uh like uh, a few countries like ukraine kazakhstan etc and I would say probably 10% in Romania and another 10 like all over the world, like whoever get access to some of the ransomware service platforms. And would you say that that comprises of all the bad guys that, that we see or are there others in, mixed into the, the conundrum of, of cyberspace? Uh, I mean, I would say like at least like 90% of the guys, uh, like definitely from those countries, but every once in a while, uh, we do see some actors uh, that are associated with the countries that are on the sanction list. Uh, so it would be like operators from Iran, North Korea, etc. Did you want to talk a little bit more about the structure and like who is behind this stuff? I, I, I see the approach, but maybe um, what I was saying, Steve, we haven't really painted the picture yet of like what the bad guys are. So I guess maybe what we could start with talking about is maybe you could. Awesome. So JC, what's a, like, what's a typical day in the life uh, for you? Thanks, Steve. So as an incident responder, I am the person who you would call at 5 p.m. on a Friday when your hair's on fire, when you look at your computers and everything is locked and you don't know what to do. Um, so what you would have happen is you would call typically your cyber insurance company and let them know what's going on. They would get you in touch with a breach coach. And eventually you'd find yourself on the line with myself and a team like me and Evgeny. And what our main goal would be is to be to get you from the start to the finish line of getting your systems back up and running. Now, typically speaking, I would say for me and Evgeny and why we're here today, we do specialize in what we call ransomware response. So uh, me on the flip side, the investigations for 
organizations that have been impacted by these types of events. And what that essentially is, is that all of their files are locked and they're unable to open them. Uh, So without valid backups, you have limited options on how you're going to approach the problem to be able to get your files back. Actually, until late 2019, most ransomware groups actually only focus was the encryption of victim data. But there was a group in November of 2019 that actually made its celebrity status. Its name was Maze, which you may or may not be familiar with. And what they did is they shifted their tactics a little bit to put clients into what we call a dual prong crisis. And basically what that means is that Now, not only would your data be encrypted, but they would actually come into victims' environments and copy out data and take it into their own digital environment and use that as an extortion tactic, basically threatening or stating that if a payment or a resolution is not made, that they would post that data on a leak or blast website um, to publicly shame the clients, risk reputational damage, and have potentially sensitive information online and publicly available on things like the dark web or put it for sale. It's a pretty successful business, wouldn't you say? I would definitely say it is, Steve. Yeah, at the same time, like, uh, uh, I would say, I mean, like, definitely a lot of uh, different variants, like, jumped on the same bandwagon with uh, Maze. So we're currently tracking about, like, 20, 25 different groups that uh, do the same thing. So, like, they do exfiltrate their data uh, before the publication. But... uh, at the same time, I, I don't think it's really a smart idea for the bad guys to do that. Uh, because, for example, like if uh, if they're dealing with a client that have a cyber insurance like for a certain amount, uh, like in the past, uh, the, the the client would only have to worry about the encryption of the data and the restoration of the data. That's a great point, Evgeny. And there's also a couple of other fees associated besides just notification, but even just the additional forensic fees in order to identify the population of exfiltrated data, dark web searches and monitoring that might be needed to make sure that data never gets exposed, and also data mining efforts to identify out of the population that was taken what is PIHI, PII, PCI, or notification data that needs to be notified on. Yeah, essentially, essentially, uh, well, we're not cyber policy experts here. We're not uh, attorneys. You know, we just see a thing or two. Um, that's why we know a thing or two. And here we're, we're here to say a thing or two that you have a maximum pie that this money could be drawn from. And the threat actors are going to demand something around half to three quarters of that, which severely limits, you know, the business's ability to respond. Because from the threat actors perspective, they see money. They want money. They're financially motivated. Uh, what they don't see is that, according to you know U.S. privacy laws, is that once data goes outbound, once once that data owner loses access or, or, or um, possession of that data, that could be reportable. And the threat actor says, "Okay, I want half the policy. I want three quarters of the policy." And the client pays. Now they have you know a very small portion left to cover whatever downstream fees from notifications to credit monitoring, call center, PR, you know, whatever it may take to, to continue on from that aftermath of, of the event. So just because there's a cyber policy in play and um, a payment might be made, it doesn't mean that it goes away. There's still some uh, issues that, that occur um, after, uh, after everything's all said and done from an investigation standpoint. So understanding this, 
Um, you know, we're talking a lot about the bad guys and, and these attacks and what they're demanding. You know, from a threat intelligence standpoint, you know, who are these people? Is the is law enforcement able to arrest them? You know, how is it that these guys are so successful and our businesses are continually falling one after the other um, because of their success? No, that's a great question. So, like a lot of those guys, based on my experience, uh, like usually, as I mentioned earlier, like up from uh, former like U.S. republics, uh, like Russia, etc. Uh, but uh, even with that, uh, the law enforcement agencies had pretty good success on uh, trying to track down some of the payments, uh, basically following the money, uh, like looking at which exchanges, tumblers, makers they use to launder the funds, etc and uh, how they uh, do the cash-outs with the proceeds. Uh, and uh, in the last uh, few months, specifically Ukraine and Kazakhstan did uh, some uh, some pretty interesting uh, developments and uh, some pretty, pretty, pretty cool arrests of the guys, like uh, of the folks that uh, affiliated both like with the uh, banking Trojans that being used uh, to deploy the ransomware and also some of the like ransomware operators as well. So Evgeny... Where in the world are these people and why can't we just arrest them? Why why aren't the law enforcement just arresting them right now? Uh, I mean, in most cases, uh, uh, like th- those guys are living in countries, they don't have any like extradition agreements with the United States. So it would be yeah, Russia, for example, and uh, other countries. So uh, like in, in best case scenario, like uh, if U.S. law enforcement would be able to identify the, the specific individuals and potentially publish announcements uh, about them. I mean, like in best case scenario, those guys will not be able to travel anywhere outside of Russia. But uh, at the same time, like obviously those guys are pretty smart. So like they, they definitely would be pretty uh, careful and uh, would not go travel anywhere where they potentially can be arrested. We work closely with FBI. We provide a lot of information to them. And, uh, and based on uh, open source uh, analysis and some analysis based on evidence from our cases, uh, we actually were able to identify a lot of guys and, and know exactly who they are and and where they live and uh, what what uh, uh, their like date of birth, etc. So uh, we uh, work closely with FBI and uh, hopefully, like one day, those guys will not be careful, travel somewhere, and they will get arrested. So, what are they, Evgeny? Are they a, a hacker sitting in their basement with a black hood, or how are these gangs essentially operating? Uh, interestingly enough, so like uh, based on uh, like few inf- uh, like articles and uh, piece of information we collected, like a lot of those guys have a lot of uh, uh, various b- side businesses as well. So essentially, they using the proceeds to prop up other uh, type of businesses that they uh, get involved into, and they they doing pretty well and living pretty good life uh, you know, like in those countries. Uh, but as I said, like as long as they will not travel anywhere. Unfortunately, there's not much we can do. <laughs> um, yeah, no, I mean, this is uh, this is some pretty pretty wild information here. How how much how public is you know what we know versus you know the common individual? You know, a lot of my clients specifically, they ask, you know, can we you know find these guys and go get them? And usually, my response is generic, like our our responsibilities ends at your firewall. It's usually the FBI and other mm-hmm. uh, intercountry agencies. Uh, law enforcement agencies to uh, help with, you know, what's past your firewall. Um, but but how how widely known is, you know, the information that we know? Um, 
available to just the general public? Great question. Yeah, and I completely agree because like we, we collect more than 150 data points on every matter that we deal with. Uh, but uh, like as Jason said, like the, the, the second part of their uh, question slash answer is that like we, we do report uh, like at least all metadata to law enforcement and uh, work with them closely on the investigations of different variants. So then I guess how often are, are you using all of this intelligence um, in your in your day to day? You know, JC, you, you mentioned you get called at uh, 5 p.m. On, on Friday with hair on fire and it helped to hopefully put that out by, you know, sometime over the weekend, early Monday. Um, Evgeny, what's your, you know, how do you overlay into, you know, what JC does and how she during during her uh, incident response matters? Yeah, information that we collect, uh, and uh, we have uh, over a year of historical data at this point, uh, is extremely helpful because uh, when JC get, gets called at 5 p.m. on Friday night, uh, as long as we know like what type of variant we're dealing with, uh, we kind of know upfront uh, how exactly those guys operate, how they generally uh, put the like initial ransom demand, like are they looking at the re revenue numbers or profits, etc. Potentially, what kind of uh, discount we can get from those guys based on our historical information. I would agree with that, Evgeny. And you know the saying, history repeats itself. I think that does ring true to an extent here when we're talking about the different gangs or families that we work with. Something that's really important as well to know is that once we are familiar or know what gang we're dealing with, we can rely on that historical data to basically tell us what that experience is going to look like to a honestly almost startling degree of certainty. And all that boils down to is that at the end of the day, what we've been seeing with these ransomware groups is that they're behaving more and more like regular everyday businesses. And with that in mind, they have almost like standard operating procedures of how they do things and how they conduct that business. Um, we call it, and I'm sure it's kind of a buzzword, all of uh, you know, the tech world loves their acronyms and it's called a RAS or ransomware as a service. And basically what it is, is it's a profit sharing subscription model for ransomware, where if let's say I'm the developer, instead of you paying me a one-time fee for my piece of malware, you can sign up for my RAS platform for free or for a small entry fee. And that platform would then provide to you a couple of different things. So ongoing access to my ransomware or my malware binaries, uh, user-friendly dashboards so you can monitor your victims, how many files have been encrypted, maybe what antivirus they're using, and some statistics about the environment itself. Uh, and what would be in that for me as a developer? Well, I'm going to take a cut of every ransom that you collect. Let's say on the low end, I take 10%. But if I'm running a sophisticated operation, I'm taking 40%. Um, so this is what we're seeing in the kind of wild right now is that a lot of these attackers are acting as businesses. So the landscape is changing. Well, I can see a ton of value in, in knowing what their business hours are or how much their demands would be. Just so that you can say from a hair on fire perspective, it's still going to be on fire for at least the next you know, three days when these guys are back in office. Definitely, Steve. And I think that data is so valuable, especially when we're dealing with a situation where a client 
is dealing with so much that is out of control to be able to give them some structure, give them a path forward, give them data points that, you know, historically we can rely on. Obviously, we have some outliers. There's no um, magic to this. (laughs) We are dealing with human beings at the end of the day who are able to think and act of their own free will. But I would say, you know, nine times out of 10, these projects or these cases go in a way that is to an extent predictable. Yeah. And just to add to that, uh, like uh, we actually, like based on our understanding on how exactly those groups operate, so like we, we deal with a lot of what's called a uh, ransomware as a service. So there's like core team that supports all the tools, uh, development and everything else, uh, like internally. And then they have basically a bunch of franchisees, uh, uh, that just subscribe to to the platform and use their tools to do bad stuff. So, like, if if we know, for example, that the client has the ability to restore the data, so they don't really need the decryption tool. Yeah, you mentioned uh, you mentioned a couple of buzzwords there. You know, ransom as a service platforms. They're operating as a business. Wow, wow. So this is like something a little more than a script kitty, a little less than kind of like one of the APT programmers, right? Yeah, I mean, it's really straightforward. Uh, and unfortunately, like uh, for the good guys, unfortunately, the level of entry like into this business is extremely low. Uh, and things got worse, actually, after the COVID uh, started because a lot of companies uh, had to open up uh, like uh, remote desktop protocols uh, for their network to enable their employees to work remotely or provide them additional ways to access the devices remotely as well. Uh, and it just opened up a huge opportunity for like l- less sophisticated groups uh, like Dharma, Phobos, et cetera, to gain access to their systems and uh, deploy ransomware. Yeah, that, that ties right into our trends report that we released earlier uh, this year, uh, which basically said there was a 300% increase um, in that type of activity uh, through through RDP compromise. Um, so certainly, you know, uh, as, as, uh, as I like to tell my clients, you know, no one's immune to a cyber attack, and the only way to, to not be a target is to unplug your computers from from the internet. It's just uh, just a fact of the matter now that uh, just as walking down the streets in New York City in the '80s, you know you were a target. You're going to get mugged, and that's what these ransomware uh, groups are now too. As long as your business has internet connectivity, you're a target, and it's just a matter of time before they they uh, gain access and, and deploy their ransomware. Not a matter of if, but when. <laughs> the famous statement. That thing's going to be like up there from a uh, shot heard around the world, right? <laughs> but uh, okay. All right. So this is, you know, this is really, really great content here. We talked a little bit about you know, the background of threat intelligence, how it can be applied into you know, these incident response matters. We dove deep into, you know, the minds of these threat actors, how easily it is to, to get into their inner circles. It's really nuts. I mean, this just, just reminds me of the, uh, the article that came out several weeks ago. Uh, from Accorded Future, the interview with the the uh, hacker from one of these you know, platforms or the, the ransom as a service groups. And, uh, you know, in that they stated, oh, we're going to, you know, put the pressure on. We're going to call executives. We're going to shame the executives. We're going to, you know, go after them uh, to really force the payments. And, you know, you know, we see this every single day, right? Brand new client after brand new client after brand new client, all these victims. Um, and we tell them, you know, listen to us. We're the experts. And, 98% of them probably listen. And that 2% sometimes don't listen and they get by. But there's a very small percentage, which is starting to grow, where they don't listen. They use their corporate assets 
for um, handling these sensitive communications with with us, with their in, uh, incident responders, with their counsel, discussing negotiation strategies and getting on conference calls. You know, you think about what gets transmitted across email. You have conference calls, uh, calendar invites. You have uh, contracts. You have specific strategy instructions on what to do, what to say, how to say it. Yeah, that's some that's some gold. And if you're an attacker, you can get into a position to eavesdrop. Why not? It's just going to strengthen their position to maintain persistence to force that upper hand in getting that getting that payment. It's pretty nuts the links that they're going to and the uh, quick shift that we're starting to see on uh, on this pressurization techniques uh, that you're alluding to. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. And on top of that, uh, it was also mentioned in the article that uh, in a lot of cases, uh, attackers definitely uh, looking for financial statements. And in some cases, they're looking for like in, uh, cyber insurance policies as well. So like if they do find them, and we had quite a few cases where they basically were showing us, hey, like your policy limit is X, Y, Z, and that's what we want <laughs> from you guys. I think it's important too to realize that, you know, threat actors and their tactics are changing every single day. They are growing with us. They are changing with us. And what we talk about today might even be irrelevant by tomorrow, um, which is super interesting. And something that we've been seeing is with certain ways in which we try to combat these things and we call it kind of call it the irony of better security um so a great example is the introduction of things like edr tools edr just stands for endpoint detection and response as i mentioned you know these as being tech people we love our you know acronyms but what that basically is essentially is a way that we're able to almost squish out ransomware and in general, if we had it on every single organization on the planet and it was run properly, which obviously that's never going to be the case, but as it grows in popularity, that pool of victims is shrinking and shrinking. But with that, we do see the changes in tactics and exfiltration is a great component of that and something we do see a lot because exfiltrating on its own is not technically malicious. It's not like you know, detonating a ransomware binary where it's going to trigger all your antiviruses and all the alarms in the house. Exfiltration on a small scale, and you obviously wouldn't call it exfiltration, but it is something that happens every day in businesses. When you send an email, you add an attachment, you go to your Google Drive and upload something. These are all normal day-to-day activities that happen. Um, So I think that's something we're really going to see an uptick on, and we actually did write kind of an article about this in a way we're seeing it with different variants where they're actually not encrypting data at all. They're coming in, they're copying out files, and then they're deleting them. And I think this is something we're probably going to see more in the future, uh, just because that, as I said, irony of better security as we grow and grow and get better and better, um, you know, they're going to find workarounds to that because they're not going to just give up and close up shop. Yeah, JC, I 100% agree with you. It's, it's kind of funny to like uh, recall, like <laughs> at least like our life like, a couple of years ago, like what we just had a play in matters, like attackers would just come in, encrypt the data and get out. Now we have so many different aspects that we have to be concerned about, like data exfiltration, uh, like a potential like a deployment, and not just uh, like coming through RDP, but like some sophisticated baking Trojans, etc. And uh, 100% agree that it probably will continue to evolve going forward and that's probably part of uh thing that makes our job 
kind of fun, I guess. Agree. Exciting. Never stop learning. You know, JC, from your perspective, Evgeny, from your perspective, did they really delete the data or do they still have that data sitting somewhere for a future extortion? That's a great question, Steve. And honestly, it is one that, in my opinion, needs to be caveated, and I'm going to explain why. Um, the, the, the answer we typically give is at the end of the day, these people, as we kind of mentioned, are trying to run and do operate in a business sense. And with that, there is a huge um, care to their reputation because if they start getting known as a variant that you know doesn't withhold their word or keep their word, um, people are going to simply stop paying them. That being said, and this is why I have to caveat it, ransomware and exfiltration holding hands only started in November of 2019. So what that means is we have less than two years worth of data points to see whether or not they're going to go back on that word. As of right now, I think, and I'll, I'll kind of defer to Evgeny on this too, I personally have not seen in any of my cases, and I've probably done over 600 ransomware cases at this point, um, and I have not seen a threat actor go back on their word as far as exfiltration goes. That being said, we can't say that, you know, in two, three, four, five years time, that data might not resurface. Technically speaking, could a shred log be faked? Yes, it could. You could copy the data, you could put it on another drive and delete it and prove it that way. But is there a reason for them to do that? That's a different question. I mean, storing data and especially storing that kind of data for more than a year or years and years is really expensive. Uh, so I don't really see as far as a cost-benefit analysis goes, them having a need to store that data long-term. And because we haven't seen it in a year, I think that it would be a low degree of, you know, seeing that resurface in the future. But we cannot say there's no way you will ever see that data come back because simply we just don't have the time behind us to say that. No, I absolutely agree. And uh, I mean, like, uh, and, and the value of the data is actually like is uh, essentially nothing compared to the payments that they get in uh, from the ransomware payments. Uh, and like, for example, like the uh, uh, Kiwi uh, tried to establish the auction site, like where they they try to sell uh, to sell some of the data uh, for the clients they decide not to pay. Uh, and most of those data sets, even though the price was like around like $10,000, which is nothing compared to their typical demands, uh, most of those data sets uh, have not been purchased. Yeah, that's, uh, that's nuts. I mean, that's, that's really innovation at its best, right? How do you capitalize on, how do you really capitalize on the data? So if they're financially motivated and nobody pays, simply plastering the, the victim's name across the, the dark web, it only has so much effect. Uh, but really, you know, what are these guys doing with the data is, is the more mind-boggling question because we've seen the the auction sites. We've also seen idle threats where the uh, person say we're going to sell it on in the, in the dark web forums. So tracing the data is extremely hard, especially once, you know, it leaves your systems. You don't really have tracers built into the files, not to mention, you know, the largest uh, majority of Americans' uh, information is already out there with the Equifax, Equifax breach uh, and some of the other... Um, breaches in the insurance space, healthcare insurance space. Uh, so a lot of our information is already out there. Then really, how do you, you figure out where it actually came from? So it's it's certainly a, a challenge, um, but nonetheless, that's something that we, we all have to keep in the back of our minds that uh, 
this is lingering out there and we just don't know because as JC pointed out, the, uh, the date is too early, too young to be able to make a full determination on what are, what, what's happening to the data when these guys take it. All right. So, um, you know, we've, we've I think we've had a, a lot of great content here, um, talking about threat intelligence, uh, specifically engaging in conversations with the threat actors, how they get their tooling, what it is we're, we're doing on the front lines to help our clients through uh, these matters, making educated decisions based on historical information. Because uh, a lot of these groups, they really are cookie cutter. You know, they have specific demands based on certain sizes of, of the organizations. They have specific ways to uh, communicate with them. Uh, they get their tooling from specific forums in the dark web. And so it's easy to monitor them and figure out what the changes and trends are uh, and then see that in you know real life as our as our clients come to us in need for for a recovery. I guess JC, I'll start with you. You know what is what is some advice uh, recommendations you would uh, give to the the listeners out there uh, should they ever find themselves in the unfortunate position um, that you so help your clients with? Great question. Um, oh, putting me on the spot here, Steve. I think if I could give anyone the proper advice, the very first thing I would say is if you find yourself in this situation, call your insurance company ASAP if you have it. Uh, if you don't have it, go get cyber insurance right now. <laughs> um, other than that, some key words would be know who your drivers are in your organization. So when you are in an emergency situation, you know who needs to be on the line who your resources are and who those drivers are going to be for the different pieces of an engagement. Um, have and know what your backup situation looks like. Have you actually tested these backups? And I mean, have you really tested these backups? Not, you know, we looked once and we know it's on some, you know, drive in the, the bottom of our desk, but have you actually ever tried to restore from that backup and made sure that you know how long it takes, you know exactly what files are on it or what's being saved to it? Is it a full backup? Is it a incremental? Is it a partial? What, what is your backup situation? Um, because at the end of the day, in these types of situations, when we're talking about ransomware, that's really the only thing that is going to fully save you should you find yourself in this situation. Yeah, and just to, to chime in uh, on what Jason said, like definitely get the cyber insurance, but make sure you don't save it like in your email, so on your desktop, uh, like, <laughs> just print it, print it out and put it like in the safe or somewhere. Uh, and like from from the backup standpoint, it's kind of ironic, but I mean, like uh, when we run into the clients uh, that haven't updated their like backup systems for years and still using tapes. Tapes cannot be encrypted. I mean, like so, like <laughs> from that standpoint, yeah, like there are a lot of like cool different solutions, like cloud, like hot, uh, like you know, warm backups, everything else. But I mean, like uh, in, in worst case scenario, I mean, like just uh, create a copy of all, of everything you need, put it on the hard drive, and put it in the safe, and you'll be safe. And key word there is put it in the safe. Don't leave it attached to the network. <laughs> Oh, very good. Very good. Um, I'm certainly going to do that for myself. Uh, print everything out the paper, pop it in the safe. This way I know that the hard drive won't fail. I'll be able to grab it from the safe and uh, use it for whatever that, that need is. So I uh, appreciate the uh, guidance there and, and recommendations. And I hope our listeners have uh, found use in that. So Evgeny, thank you for uh, for coming on the show again. I uh, hope to have you uh, back soon. JC, likewise, I know it's your first time here. 
um, appreciate the, uh, the perspective and the, and the candor, um, you know, hoping to have you back soon as well. Um, audience, uh, listeners, thanks for, for joining us this week to learn about threat intelligence and the critical aspect of it when we apply it to our, our incident response investigations. Uh, thank you. We'll, we'll chat next time.